Let's find our seats, and if you have a Bible, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, if you don't have a Bible, open up your phone, all right, and pull it up online or an app that you might have, Acts chapter 16. Um, I should have been doing this all along the way through the book of Acts, forgive me for not, but I do want to show you some stuff on a map this morning just to help maybe make some things a little bit clearer. So last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Paul's first missionary journey, and so this was chapters 13 and 14. You'll remember, here's Jerusalem down here in Antioch. This is where this first missionary journey was going to go out from. And just to show you, they went to the island of Cyprus and then up into, of course, this is modern-day Turkey, uh, Asia Minor, and this is, down here is the Galatian region. But they went to Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, doing evangelism, planting churches, and the like. And having reached Derby, they made their way back to Lystra, to Iconium, to Pisidia Antioch, encouraging them through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God and establishing elders in those early young churches and made their way back to Antioch. And they were thrilled about that and gave a report about what God was doing among the Gentiles we, we spent a little time, we said this is where the book of Galatians fits in. Because soon after Paul returned to Antioch, false teachers moved in behind him into those churches he had just planted and began to shake things up a little bit, and Paul wrote the book of Galatians at this time. They then came down to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 for the Jerusalem council, and then back up to Antioch. And then... Paul went on a second missionary journey. And if you'll remember, um, they're in Antioch again, and Paul says to Barnabas, hey, Barnabas, let's, let's go back and visit these churches we planted on the first journey. And Barnabas said, hey, great, let's take John Mark with us. And you'll remember John Mark had left them on the first missionary journey. Paul wasn't so sure about it. They had what Luke called a sharp disagreement. But they came to a, a, um, a compromise, if you will, Barnabas and John Mark would come back to the island of Cyprus. And then Paul took a, a new fellow on the team, Silas, and they went and revisited these churches. In Lystra, that's where they picked up Timothy and made their way back visiting these churches. And then last week, we looked at, they're going to press on now. And they started to head west, probably wanted to come all the way over here to Ephesus. But if you remember, the Lord said no. They turned north, wanting to go up into Bithynia, and the Lord said no, and they came to Troas, and it's in Troas that Paul received that Macedonian call. Macedonia is over here. He had a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us, and that's where we find ourselves this morning in Acts chapter 16, verse 11. You'll notice in verse 10, when Paul had seen the vision... Immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You ever read the book of Philippians in your New Testament? It's four chapters long. It's, you can read Philippians in maybe 15, 20 minutes. Some of you even quicker than that. Philippians is one of the favorite of our New Testament books. It's 
It's the book in which we find, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. In chapter 1. In chapter 2, don't look after your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. So that great passage of Jesus Christ, who is God, becoming one of us, for our salvation. It's the book where we read about in chapter 4, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication make your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's that book in the latter part of chapter 4, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Philippians, four chapters long, one of the most famous of all of Paul's letters. Well, this morning, we're going to quickly look at the birth of that church that some 10 or 11 years later, he would write the book of Philippians to, the church in Philippi. Verse 11, so putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and then on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. So they left Troas and came across to Philippi. In this city, we're going to see the universal appeal of the gospel as well as its unifying effect. It's universal appeal. We're going to see a woman, an independent, wealthy woman, apparently, come to faith in Jesus. We're going to see an unfortunate, used and abused, exploited slave girl come to faith in Jesus. And we're going to see a rough and tough Roman jailer come to faith in Jesus. And then at the end, we're going to see them all in fellowship together. Universal appeal. Jesus Christ can save anybody. And unifying effect. Those anybodies meet at the foot of the cross and they love each other. At least that's the way it ought to be, huh? So let's watch. In verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to, to the riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And most of the scholars will tell us, most likely, there, were not, there wasn't enough of a Jewish population in Philippi. There weren't enough Jewish men in order to have an official synagogue. And so the women would come down to the river, and there they would pray, and they would visit, and they would talk about the Lord. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke went down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. Thyatira is a city right over here. It's in Asia. And it was known for its purple dye. 
The scholars are back and forth. It may have been both. Some think it was from an oyster, something they would get from the sea, and from that oyster they were able to extract some some dye that they would make this beautiful purple color with. Others think it was the matter root that they would grow, and they would take that matter root, and they could squeeze the juices out of it, and from it they would produce this beautiful purple dye. And apparently one of the things they would do is they would take their linens and they would make these beautiful purple linens out of them. And apparently this woman, Lydia, had come from Thyatira, moved to Philippi, and she was a seller of purple fabrics. She's a woman. She's a businesswoman. I think the impression we probably get of her is that she has reputable character. She is a worshiper of God. Now, she's, that means she's a Gentile. She's not Jewish. But probably during her days in Thyatira, there was a Jewish population there. They had a synagogue. And she had been attracted to Israel's God. Um, the Greek and Roman culture, of course, had its pantheon of gods. But Israel had Jehovah that they, they worshipped. They were monotheistic and the God-fearers in the New Testament, the worshipers of God, these are Gentiles who generally seem to be attracted to that monotheism, the God of Israel, and probably to the morality and the ethic of Israel. That the Jewish people had a word from God as to who he was and who they were and how he desired for them to live. And apparently this woman was attracted to that. She probably had not proselytized to Judaism. She had not become a Jew. But she worshipped the God of Israel. She gathered with the Jewish people. And there she was listening. As Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, most likely Paul for sure, was explaining to those who were gathered the gospel. This is a Jewish audience, and probably Paul is sharing with them much like he did in Pisidia Antioch when they went into the synagogue of the Jews and he was invited to speak, and he went back and traced the Old Testament hope of the Messiah. If you remember that, through Genesis and Exodus and to Leviticus and all the way through the Old Testament of their longing and their waiting for one who would come. And Paul said, He's come. And he came and he died upon a cross for his people. God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand and through him offers the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit and the promise of eternal life. Verse 14, And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. What an incredible little phrase. The Lord opened her heart. You know, passage after passage in the New Testament reminds us that apart from God's grace in our lives, we are dead in our sins. In Acts chapter 13, 
It's said of those who didn't believe that they thrust aside the gospel which Paul was preaching. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul, talking about unbelievers, says that the gospel is foolishness to them and they're not able to understand it. That's, listen, that's unbelievers. And for those of us who've come to faith in Jesus, that was us before God saved us. The gospel was foolishness. We weren't able to understand it. In Romans chapter 8, Paul reminds us that the mind of the flesh, that's the unbelieving mind, is hostile to God. It does not want to submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. In John chapter 3, those who hear and reject the gospel hate the light and don't want to come to the light because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. In Ephesians 4, it says of unbelievers, they are darkened in their understanding because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. If all of that is true, how is it that any of us come to put our faith in Jesus Christ? How is it that any of us hear the gospel and say, yes? We've gotten some clues in the book of Acts already. If you remember back in chapter 13, verse 48, while some were disbelieving and thrusting aside the gospel, there were some who were believing. And Luke tells us, it was as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Powerful phrase. In Acts chapter 11, when the leadership in Jerusalem heard that Gentiles were responding to the gospel, they began to rejoice that, the Gentiles all, that to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. How come any of us say yes to Jesus? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God has granted repentance that leads to life. And then here, and this might be the clearest of the statements, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Paul was speaking. Paul was preaching and sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is essential if anyone is going to be saved. But it's not decisive. What's decisive is that with the preaching of the gospel, God opens the hearts of the people. He opened your heart and mind to see the glory of Christ and the truth of the gospel. That's why. If you believe, that's why you believe. It's not because you were smarter than your buddies. It's not because you were more spiritually sensitive than your brother or your sister. It's not because you were more intelligent or just get it. And everybody else just doesn't. 
you and I apart from God's amazing grace, we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Our minds were darkened. Our hearts were hardened. We sing about this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed. The message was Paul's, but the saving initiative was God's. Paul's preaching was not effective in itself. The Lord worked through his preaching. And the Lord's work was not itself direct. He chose to work through Paul's preaching. And so any preaching of the gospel that I do from here and any sharing of the gospel you do with friends and neighbors or whoever it might be is essential, but it's not decisive. God works through the preaching and the proclaiming of his gospel and he opens hearts according to his sovereign power and sovereign pleasure. She believed And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. Her response, she believed. And then she got baptized. She and her household. The, The implication is there that maybe she had some children, maybe it was some employees who lived with her. We think she's probably a widow. But she told her family or her household or had Paul tell them or one of the others, and they believed, and they got baptized. They went public. Friends, this is one of those texts, and we're going to see it later, lest we run out of time. The Philippian jailer is going to put his faith in Jesus, and guess what he's going to do? He's going to get baptized. He's going to go public. These kinds of texts are why we're Baptists. One of the reasons why. We believe in believer's baptism. Baptism is something you do after you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You believe in him. You trust in him. You put your faith in him. And he forgives your sins and gives you his Holy Spirit. And he adopts you into the family. And the promises of God are now Yours, and he begins to give you new desires and change your life and put you into service and use you. It's awesome. And one of the first things he calls every one of his followers to do is to go public and let people know I'm a follower of Jesus through baptism. So I, I, I do this every once in a while. Encourage you again. If you have put your faith in Jesus but have not since then been baptized you ought to be do i have to be baptized in order to get saved not at all we're saved by the grace of god through faith in jesus christ but then those who've been saved 
they say, what next, Lord? Oh, baptism? Okay. If that's you, on that Connecting at Redeemer card, would you write your name down and some contact information and say, Mitch, it's time for me to get baptized. We're going to pass those baskets at the end. So she believed, she got baptized, and she said, hey, y'all come on into my home. Hospitality is one of those things that pops up all throughout the New Testament, that Christians are to be a hospitable people, as this dear woman was. So that's Lydia, successful, independent businesswoman who believes. Verse 16, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us and was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. This is a, this is a sad picture. This is, this is unfortunate. Here's a girl, it seems, some sort of evil spirit. They thought it was the, the, the among their gods, the Apollos, who would embody a person and who would give them special powers of fortune telling. But here was a girl who was being taken advantage of, not merely that this spirit of div divination was in her, but these masters, these guys, had thought, we can make some profit with this girl. We can use her. We can exploit her for some money. How terrible is that? And How sad that it happens all over the world. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now we think she's probably, this is probably the evil spirit at work within her, who is, is probably trying to discredit Paul's gospel by aligning it with this evil that is happening. She may have the Most High God in mind, or she may have Zeus in mind. She may be talking about the way of salvation through Jesus, or they were just, the, the Greeks and the Romans were just as passionate to find the way of salvation. So whether or not she's got her theology correct here, we're not so sure. She kept doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. Probably because he did not want to be connected to this. You could imagine if there was some sort of um, fortune-telling type of thing going on. And if as I was preaching, that person was saying, yeah, he's proclaiming to you the truth. And I would continue to preach Jesus. He's telling you about the Most High God. I would probably myself say, hey man, 
Knock it off. Don't want to be associated with that. So Paul was greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. We're not told, but it seems to me and others that this girl is probably saved. Paul probably took some more time with her and told her about Jesus. And much like Mark chapter 5, you remember the, the Gadarene demoniac, that man who himself had the evil spirits and Jesus cast them out and what happened to him he began to sit at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind I wonder if the same didn't happen to this girl having been delivered from this evil spirit and no longer being used and abused and exploited by these men that she began to find peace and rest in Christ. I wonder if Lydia didn't say, hey, Suge, come on. Why don't you come over to my house tonight? I'll cook you a meal and you probably need a place to stay. And I wonder if they didn't drink coffee long into the night as Lydia began to love on this girl and help her, and disciple her, to help her understand who God is, and what he had done through Jesus Christ, and how he wanted to change her life, and give her hope. Well, the result here in verse 19, when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, interesting, same word is at the end of verse 18, of the spirit that came out, just as the Spirit came out of her, their hope of profit came out. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, or proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. These guys thought more about money than they did about the God of heaven and earth who had sent his son Jesus Christ into the world for sinners like them. Jesus warned in Mark chapter 4 of the parable of the sower that some seed would fall on rocky soil or among the thorns. And part of those thorns was the deceitfulness of riches. And because of it, people won't follow Jesus. Following Jesus may cost me money, I'm out. Because money is more important to me than my soul. And sadly, money was more important to them than her soul. Her well-being. The Apostle Paul would say later that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Well, they get hauled in. Verse 22, the crowd rose up together against them. The chief magistrates tore their robes off them, proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. 
And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet with stocks. The Roman government was generally pretty tolerant to other religions. But these guys went before them and you can see a bit of the ethnic superiority that was at work here. In verse 20, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it's not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. We're, we're Romans, they're Jews, and how sad was yesterday. The anti-Semitism on display. These guys were going to lose some money and they were doing all that they could to put a stop to this and the crowd also because probably so much of the culture and so much of the economy was tied to the gods. And here was Paul and his friends proclaiming that Caesar is no God nor anyone else except the true God. struck them with many blows, threw them into prison, commanded the jailer to guard them securely, threw them in the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks. But about, about midnight, Paul and Silas, maybe Luke and Timothy were in the background and, and, and didn't get arrested. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Just a side note here. What songs will you sing? They get thrown in, they get beaten, thrown in prison, limbs in stocks, those are the wooden things. And they begin to sing. songs will you sing? Things might heat up here in America. Probably not that we're going to be thrown into prison. But some of you, God may call you and you think, no way He's going to call me. I'm too old. But He may call you. He may call you today. He may call you next week, next month, next year. And you who think you will never ever go serve Jesus Christ in a hard place around the world, it may be you. And you may find yourself on the other side of the world serving Jesus in a hard place and it may get real hard. What song will you sing? At the office when you take a stand for Christ and, and, and somebody yells at you or somebody laughs at you or whatever it might be when you go to Thanksgiving dinner with family and you take a small stand for Jesus and get laughed at again. And later that night, you're lying in bed and you're thinking, what song will you sing when cancer comes, when terminal comes, when the phone call in the middle of the night comes and says, dad is gone, mom is gone. Brothers and sisters, do you have any songs to sing at midnight? Say, so, yeah, Jesus loves me. This I know. Good. 
do you have more? In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. The sun comes up. It's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass, or whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. I've got a buddy in the church right now who's going through a hard time and I texted him the other day. I said, man, you need to memorize this song, this hymn. God moves in a mysterious way. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are rich with mercy and shall break with blessing on your head. And on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time shall come, still my soul will sing your praise forever, 10,000 years and then forevermore. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every, or through stormy days, he faithful will. No, in every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend, through stormy ways, will keep thee till the end. Find you one song to sing at midnight. You say, Mitch, I can't, I can't memorize any hymn. One. Find you one psalm, song to sing when the hard time comes. Matt Williamson was telling me before the service today that uh, Tony Evans preached on this text. And he just, when he got to, but about midnight, and you can imagine Tony Evans. Midnight's coming! What song are you going to sing at midnight? Well, I don't know any songs to sing. If you don't have a song in your heart, then you're probably just going to sit there and gripe. But if you've got a song to sing, the goodness of God in the midst of hardship About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. Get you this. Mary Lerman gave me this one. I got your card still in there, Mary. There are lots of hymn books out there. You say, yeah, there's lots of hymn books out there. Which one do I get? Hymns of Grace, published by the Master's Seminary. It's a really good one. Verse 26, suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfashioned. Just a quick note, back in Acts chapter 4, when the apostles had been told, you can't preach in this name anymore. If you keep preaching, something bad's going to happen. 
and then let them loose. And they went back to their friends and they said, here's what they've told us, that we can't preach anymore. Let's pray and ask God to give us courage. They pray, God gives them courage, and there's an earthquake. Whenever they're told that you can't preach anymore, God gives an earthquake. Whenever they're thrown into prison, God gives an earthquake. Indeed, we are going to keep preaching. The foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open. Everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke, now let's, the jailer. So we've got this, we've got Lydia, the successful businesswoman from Thyatira, the seller of purple, the worshiper of God, and she hears the gospel and says, God opens her heart, Jesus, yes, trusts him. Gets baptized, welcomes everybody into her home. Lydia, or the slave girl, goodness gracious, abused and used and exploited. And yet, Jesus relieves her, gives her peace. Now here's this jailer. He's, he's probably Roman. He's probably an ex-soldier. And those of you who've been in the military, the military teaches you some incredible and wonderful things. But it can also harden you. This guy's probably been hardened. Kindness is probably not one of his, you know, great attributes. And when these guys are causing a stir in the city and these guys are brought to him, he was probably happy to put these guys in the stocks. Did not care how uncomfortable they were. He's just doing his job. He's rough. He's tough. Middle class guy. We find out later he's got a family, so he's just trying to make a buck by doing his job. Could care less about Israel's God. Could care less about Jesus. You can imagine what kind of guy he probably was. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. He probably knew that he himself would be killed because he had let these prisoners escape. So he would just do the deed himself. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. He called for lights, rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He probably heard why these guys were brought to prison. Maybe it tells us back in verse 12 that they were staying in the city for some days. Maybe, in fact, he had heard what they were proclaiming. But it meant nothing to him. An earthquake in the dead of night after hearing these messengers of God singing to their God and the fear of death can do something to a man. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Friend, if you're here today and you haven't been saved, listen, that's a, that's a churchy catch word. It's a biblical word, but it's the idea of you need to be saved. God is great. You and I are not. We've sinned against Him. And the message of the Bible is that our sin has separated us from Him and we are under His just and holy wrath. 
we need to be saved. We need to have our sins forgiven and, and, and the gift of Jesus Christ's righteousness given to us. We need to be adopted into his family such that he loves us. Have you been saved? Have your sins been forgiven? Are you a part of his family? If not, you need to ask that question. Verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. That's it. It's not get your act together. It's not shape up. It's not jump through the hoops. It's, you can't do anything, but the good news is it's all been done for you. God sent Jesus, His Son, to live a holy life you couldn't live. Die upon a cross to pay the penalty for what you've done. Raised from the dead. It's been done for you. And this forgiveness, this salvation, this new life is, is received as a gift. It's not earned through your good works. It's received through, I want it. Believing, trusting, faith in Jesus. That he's the one who came from heaven for you and for your salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household, if they will believe, they'll be saved. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house and he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all of his household. This is awesome. Jesus Christ changes your life. This man who had seen the beating with rods and was part of it and secured them in the jail and fastened their feet in the stocks is now the one who is washing their wounds and immediately he was baptized. He washes their wounds, and then his sins are washed away. That's what baptism symbolizes. When he believed in Jesus, his sins were washed away. And then he went public with it. He got baptized. He wanted people to know, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm going down into the water just as Jesus died and rose again. I've died with him and I've been raised again to walk in newness of life, and that I've been cleansed by Jesus to be a new kind of person. And he brought them into his house and set food before them, just like Lydia. Hey, come on over. Brought them into the house, set food before them, rejoiced greatly. In Acts chapter 2, when the word of God was preached and people believed, there was great joy. And in eight, chapter 8, when um, the Ethiopian eunuch believed, or no, when, when uh, Philip went to the Samaritans and they believed, there was joy. And when the, Philipp the Ethiopian believed in, later in chapter 8, there was joy. And this guy believes there's joy. Coming to Jesus is not just, where do I get the free ticket to heaven? 
Because I'm, I'm a scoundrel of a guy, but you say there's, it's free? Where can I get one of those tickets? So I can go back and live the way I want to live. That ain't it. Jesus Christ changes your life. You come to Jesus because you realize all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, that's me. This guy knew he was accountable to God and he was about to die. And when you, you think you're about to die, you start thinking, what must I do in order to be saved? And they told him about Jesus. That he is the forgiver of your sins and the new leader of your life. Quickly, now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans. Paul was a Roman citizen, even though he was Jewish. Silas, apparently, himself was a Roman citizen as well. And as a Roman citizen, you had some privileges. And one of them was, you couldn't be beaten like this without a fair trial. Of course, the magistrates didn't know that they were Romans. They've beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison, and now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. Probably what Paul and Silas were doing was trying to make things easier for the church they were about to leave behind. They were going to force these city leaders to say, indeed, these men are innocent. And bring them out and walk them out of the city essentially themselves. Or at least out of the jail in view of everyone. These men are all right. Probably with the hope that that would help the Christian church that was there. For the city officials to know. That this isn't right. The way that they were treated that indeed they were good men. Verse 40. So we've seen the universal appeal of the gospel for Lydia, the slave girl, the jailer. Friends, it's for you. No matter who you are and what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how smart you are or unsmart you are, how rich you are, how poor you are, how homely you look or beautiful you look, doesn't matter. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Universal. And unifying effect. They went out of the prison, entered the house of Lydia, so they stopped by Lydia's house, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. It looks like the church is now meeting in Lydia's house. The Philippian jailer is there, and he's probably got his wife and his kiddos with him. And the slave girl is there. Wouldn't you love to see that big old jailer walk into that house and see Lydia or see the slave girl? This girl who's been used and abused and all over the... He would have known exactly who she was. And he'd have said, Wow! 
How great is this? Gave her a big old hug. Meet my wife. Have you met my wife? Oh, honey, how you doing? Ah. Maybe she started getting down on the ground and playing with their kids. They're family now. Lydia's there opening up her home. What does anybody need? Anybody need some coffee? Anybody need some sweet tea? I got some food coming in just a bit. And her household that was there that had trusted in Jesus. And here's Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and probably there was others. We're now... Get this. Um, Paul had said, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. And with, with Lydia, you, you, you kind of get Jewish. Um, slave nor free. Male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Here in this home, in this church, you got Jewish folks and Gentile folks. You got a girl who's been a slave and free folks. You got men, you got women. We're all one in Christ. We love each other. We hug each other. We pray for each other. We comfort each other. We're in this together. As not merely the body of Christ, as biblical and as wonderful as that is, we're all individual members of this body. Paul would say some are eyes and some are ears and some are noses, right? The different gifts that come together. We're not just that, though. We're the family of God. We're brothers and sisters who love each other. May it be so among us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful story the start of the church in Philippi. I pray that if there are any here that are unbelieving, that maybe right now you would open their heart to respond to the gospel. Their heart is closed maybe, but you can open it. And maybe right now they think so little of Jesus, but in a millisecond they could begin to think anew that he is the Lord. Might you move in your mercy and in your grace and in your power to save. And oh Lord, might this be a place of love. We're all, so many ways we're alike, but there's also bunches of differences among us reasons to divide. But may it not be so. Might we love one another because of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.